just another reason not to watch TV. It is possible that you'll get tired of it. Then where will you be? Actually, this might not be the best time to talk about this. Can't you tell I'd welcome a change in subject? Why would you deny yourself something you want? Why don't we give it a few more minutes? Enjoy the scenery? I don't think that means what you think it means. Humiliations have been spectacular. I don't know why I picked the wrong boys. I fix you. You're beautiful and you don't talk too much. There he is. There's the man I heard so much about. Hello. Stick with him. Welcome to Mad Men Men, the weekly show where we discuss a show that used to come out weekly. Each week, we take a close look at an episode of the AMC series Mad Men, which ran from 2007 to 2015, gearing our conversation around the conversation the show is having about gender, the patriarchy, and trying Mexican food for the first time in California. I'm John Agroni, and, uh, <clears throat> well, I'm not possessive. You can podcast with anyone you want. That's cool. It's been a little bit. How's it going, Washington? I'm fine. I mean, I know we've been podcasting on, uh, you know, Cinemaholics of late. Yeah, why why would little... you ever deny a podcast you want? Well, sure. But it's been a bit since we've done this show. Mike is supposed to be here. We don't know where he is. And yeah, uh, we don't know, know if we're going to welcome on later or, you know, do something a little special for him. But what I was sure. going to say to Mike once he pops in is uh, look over to you, Will, wink and be like, mm. you think Mike and I? I'm heterosexual. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, Mike's kind of taking the Don Draper approach where, you know, kind of yeah. just left without warning. And uh, right, right. we're just we're here like at the pool. Yeah, just trying to continue business as usual. Exactly. There it is. Um, but that's all right. That's all right. We can we can get him on this thing. Then we're good to go. But anyway, so we're talking about the Jet Set, which is one of my favorite episodes of Mad Men. It's probably my favorite episode of season two. Uh, critics have said. I don't know, critics actually, but people who like Mad Men have said uh, most overrated episode. Um, but we're here to talk about, is that true? Because you saw it for the first time, right? And, uh, you know, I'm going to get your thought on that. I know this was directed by Phil Abraham, who uh, already directed uh, one episode uh, earlier this season that was made in form. Uh, another solid episode there. And uh, Matthew Weiner wrote this one. I mean, Matthew Weiner's fingerprints are all over this episode. It's hard to deny. Now, Will? The jet set. I know that uh, there was a little bit of hype coming into this episode, right? Was that the case, or did you not know what you were in for? I mean, I didn't really expect much from this one in the sense that, like, I didn't know there was extra hype for it. Well, good. That's perfect, actually, because you're supposed to watch this episode and, and sort of be disoriented a bit watching it because it is so unlike the other Mad Men episodes. Is it, though? Mm hmm. Oh, 100%. It, it's, it's, it's shot differently. It has a totally different mood to it. Uh, it It's shot like a sort of, uh, you know, 60s noir. Like it, You could really, like, slot in this, like what Don is going through in this episode with, like, a horror movie, Matthew Weiner has said. In fact, uh, when I was re-watching it, or watching it for the first time before we were doing this, um, I, I was thinking of that movie uh, Infinity Pool, because we had just watched that at Sundance. And very similar in a, a vibe wise. You don't think so? I didn't really get that. I, I felt it had kind of like a dreamy quality to it. That's like, what I mean. But not like a nightmare. I don't think of it like a horror movie. Well, I think, that, well, I mean, dreams have that edge between being a nightmare, don't they? Like at any moment, something could go wrong and you well, can see in Don's face that he's not entirely sure what he's there for. I mean, I took it as like in season one. He proposes like going to California, like moving away from his family, just starting life anew. 
and he gets this like almost like whimsical opportunity to like kind of enact that fantasy in California. He's, you know, kind of following his heart or maybe something else instead of his mind and just kind of, you know, experimenting with like living out of time almost or like kind of living away from himself or rather being more himself than maybe he's ever been as Don Draper. Yeah, I mean, there's a moment in this episode, it literally cuts from him sort of watching that presentation at the aerospace place. And it's like, oh, the entire world, total destruction. Uh, These missiles can just wipe us all out. And from like, I think almost like the very next scene, he gets into that car. And uh, which, by the way, they they shot that scene at night where he goes in the car outside the hotel, which is fantastic, like movie magic there uh hmm. tv magic how they do that but, um hmm? like it was in a sound stage or how how they do that yeah it was a sound stage it, it's very similar to you know like when betty was doing the coca-cola commercial yeah, yeah and the way the lighting works there yeah you can almost tell like if you know it while watching it because the second time i watched it i knew that and i was like ooh, well i could kind of buy that yeah, yeah. well i mean it just i kind of take that as like it's so brightly lit anyway because it's almost like he's walking into an ad like kind of like mm-hmm. why don't you experience california and everything you've ever wanted like he's like tempting himself to uh kind of play into this fantastical idea of what exactly. the california dream could be so it makes sense to kind of light it in a not entirely realistic way now you reference it being sort of like he's following his heart or pleasure yeah i mean it, it, it really is like a dive into hedonism you know like uh, i was gonna ask you like one of my first questions for you is uh do, do you think it's a little too on the nose that her name is Joy? I've always found that a little bit like, okay. A little bit. But I mean, I don't know. Don has been someone who isn't always the most subtle guy. So makes sense. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. All right. So the jet set. Uh, the, the sort of short synopsis of this is, as we've already mentioned, Don is on his business trip to L.A., uh, which was set up in the last two episodes or the last episode. And uh, while he's there, he essentially abandons Pete Campbell. Uh, Pete gets a lot of funny moments in this. Uh, uh, you know, we, we continue the trend, I think, since six-month leave where we're just getting uh, more comedy in the show, which uh, I hope you're happy to see. Because, I mean, this is, this is like stretching more into like the balance of like comedy and drama that I think Mad Men finds a little bit more comfortable as the series goes on. But anyway, while Don's in L.A., he ends up going up with this uh, entirely like like a bunch of strangers, basically nomads, jet setters. Uh, so a little bit of a double meaning in the name of the, the episode. It's called the jet set. Uh, so like the, the very literally they're there for like General Dynamics, Lockheed, like these places that have all these missiles and jets. But also he falls in with these jet setters. And uh, while that's happening, um, Peggy is kind of like in the office uh possibly striking up a romance but then finds out that uh the, the guy who just invited her to go see bob dylan at carnegie hall is gay and that creates like a whole thing in the office a, a little bit of a controversy uh, not a great episode for harry crane uh he continues his descent uh which uh well i hope you you get to talk about there and then last we we see duck mm. um make some big moves in fact i have to make a big correction about duck something that i think i said about duck episodes ago that i'll have to set the record straight when we get to it but first yes uh harry crane well a racist and a homophobe in one episode sure yeah i mean none of the Efficient. other uh office players other than peggy and i guess uh you know sal to some extent come out looking great 
in terms of their views of uh, homosexuality. I think there is like a difference that it's like you can kind of see it. You can kind of see like for the times, you know, the way people are reacting, like obviously Ken sort of like brushes it off and is a, is a jerk. He's also homophobic, but you can kind of see that like, yeah, you know, even Kurt or not Kurt, um, Schmidt, Smitty, is it Smitty, Smitty or Smitty? Yeah. Yeah, he's just like he, he's kind of like me. defending his friend, but he's also kind of like you know, oh, it was not the first you know homo that you you've worked in advertising. Like even the way he kind of does mm. it is a little bit like baby boomer, but whatever. Sure. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Harry certainly comes out looking the worst, and I mm-hmm. love that shot from Sal's perspective, not in the sense of like a POV, but uh, like we see devastating, like him, like kind of just being like, oh, like well, okay, this is interesting. Let's see what happens when the office finds out someone is homosexual and then it sadly reinforces everything that he would be afraid yeah. would happen. So he was just like, man, that's a bummer. <laughs> you just see his heart break into yeah. a million yeah, pieces. And so. Especially when, like, Ken Cosgrove, his, you know, his best friend, the person he yeah, yeah. respects Confidant. the most. Yeah. Um, some would say he has a little innocent schoolyard crush on Maybe, yeah, um, maybe it's hard to say, you know, uh, Matthew Weiner said they had to do so many takes of that scene um, that he actually felt bad for Rich Summer, who plays Harry Crane, because he apparently like ate a bunch of he had to eat, eat a, oh. a dozen of those Bismarcks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I think it was, you know, hopefully worth it. I mean, the acting that um, that the South character uh, I, I'm blanking on the actor's name again. Um, I'll have to look it up. So I, I get my my facts straight there but yeah man um it's devastating it's pretty sad sad yeah i feel for old sal my man sal but peggy gets her new do her new hairdo that's uh, true we're kind of like going around the big dawn stuff uh, i want to do a little bit of a tour uh i've been waiting for this because i i love that scene where she's just like i always pick the wrong boys what's wrong with me and kurt just kind of looks at her and just tells her <laughs> like honestly he's just honest about it. he's like yep. oh it's your hair <laughs> well, yeah, and then he fixes like, it he's like oh style no substance yeah yeah i love kurt so much um what uh what do you think of peggy's new uh, hairdo it's already turning heads it's cute it's a nice little hairdo um oh but we i was i was gonna mention probably the funniest line um in this episode is when um you know pete's back in the office and all that and he's like talking mm-hmm. about california and then he he notices Something's new with Peggy, but he doesn't quite, you know, put his finger on immediately. Sees the hairdo is different. He's like, oh, nice, whatever. Uh, and then Ken just, without any context, is like, Kurt's yeah, a homo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just, put that down. <laughs> that is, yeah. Uh, yeah, we're that is such a madman like moment, <laughs> you know. And like, yeah, this is one of those first times. This is the randomness, you know. Uh, Brian Bat is the actor who plays Sal. Um, yes, yeah. Forgive me. Um, I knew it started with a B, but I kept thinking it was like Brett or something like that. I was like, that's not right. Um, but anyway, all right. So uh, I also, I I, like I kind of got to hand it to Pete in this episode because he goes back to the office and like he's asking like, oh, is Don here? But he's not like, he, he's not selling Don out and be like, Don abandoned me or any of that stuff. He's kind of, you know, being cool about it. Uh, you could read that a couple different ways. How do you read it? Well, I mean, He's also trying to kind of live a fantasy in California as well, like in the sense that initially he wants to kind of be Don, the ladies man, like kind of going around the pool, you know, kind of picking up any lady once, even though he's a married man. Um, but later he kind of just tries to assume Don, the businessman role. 
Uh, and we don't really get to see how he does in terms of the business side of it, which I feel is probably deliberate. But we can tell that, like, obviously he's, um, you know, not really striking uh, with any of the ladies. And then even we can kind of assume that maybe the business didn't work out too well either because he's just like, people in California are strange. But you can't, like, find the word he's looking for or mm-hmm. whatever. He's just kind of just like, things are odd there. But yeah, I mean, I guess it could also apply to like how the business end work or how, you know, the sales might have gone or whatever. But um, yeah, I don't know. He didn't uh, for him. It was certainly probably a nightmare (laughs) in some respects. My my interpretation is that, yeah, he's just he was so not used to he's such a New Yorker through and through. And you can kind of tell like that first scene. I love the music cues when we first get to L.A., And Don is like in his full suit, totally out of place, standing by the pool. And the music just makes it feel like, again, so noir. So like there's such a mystique to it. His hat's like dipped over his eyes, which has a very noir kind of look to it as well. Yeah, yeah. He even says, he's like, oh, I need sunglasses, you know. And uh, David Carbonara, of course, did the music for this. And uh, I checked out some of his uh, commentary on this episode and just the work that they put into like some of these cues to really just set a mood, you know. It really does have that like Casablanca that's sort of like, this is an exotic place. Like when they name the cities later in the episode, they're all sort of like cities that are ancient and full of like grandness. Like, that's the thing that I like about Matthew Weiner's writing is like, even if he doesn't directly relate to things, he just likes to make things feel together, you know, without being directly referencing each other. It's a very subtle thing that I think he excels at uh, as an episode writer. But yeah, I, I would also say too, like with Pete, um, I also think like he he clearly seems more like scared and submissive to Don in this episode. I mean, he's kind of been pretty submissive to Don since last season, but yeah, I also get the sense that he's like covering for him because he actually kind of respects Don and, you know, his business acumen, especially like he sees the value that Don brings and will let him get away with anything essentially because, you know, there are multiple moments in the LA thing where like Don is telling him what to do and he accepts what Don says, like, you know, with very little pushback, you know, he, he seems to really like understand like his place a bit more this season than he did last season, to be fair, two years ago. Yeah, I mean, also, I just feel like it almost kind of feels like uh, a Home Alone 2 situation where he's like alone by himself <laughs> in the hotel and his parents yeah. aren't there. So he yeah, those just... are the scenes we didn't get where he right. has like three ice cream scoops. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like, oh, whatever. I'm not driving. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I also like the moment where Pete. Uh, I think part of it too is that he really respects Don at this point for making something of himself. Now that he knows that Don comes from nothing, and that like the Don Draper name is something he made for himself. You see it when they meet the Vicomte, you know, Montefe or whatever, and uh, he doesn't say he's Pete Campbell. He says. Pete Dykeman Campbell, you know, and he's like, oh, have we met before? Like, he's kind of like trying to like spark some sort of like connection. And you get that sense of like, he's not in New York. He's not in a place where that name means anything. And also he's in a place that, you know, everything's like in slow motion compared to New York. It's very true. Well, I mean, I know you were in California for a minute, but it things do that's kind true. of go at their own pace here compared to the East. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely mirrored my experience, especially when I got to have uh, some Mexican food of my own with a nice uh, burrito in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, different. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I do I do think it's really fun that they eat Mexican food in here. And Joy asked, Joy asked Don, she's like, 
you ever had Mexican food? Like, it's just such a like big deal, <laughs> like for us to hear that. Yeah. Uh, I forget that like Mexican food wasn't as commonplace as it is today. Back I was going to say, I mean, I didn't realize that watching this episode, I guess it was like kind of more, was that like in the seventies maybe and like the eighties? Probably. Became, yeah. I, yeah. I don't know the full history of it, but I think like the seventies and especially in the eighties when you started getting like microwave food and people started microwaving like burritos, I think like the taquerias in California and Texas really started to like pick up another place. Yeah. We got like Tex-Mex, you know, and like think, think of like the, like Applebee's, like that era, that that is like late seventies, right? When a lot of those like chain restaurants started popping out, and sure. the nineties is when they became ubiquitous. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So, uh, an, uh, one thing I did leave out when I did a quick the quick summary is the the way the episode opens with Roger and Jane, and uh, Jane who is like laying in bed, all mm-hmm. you know, a bit of a sexy episode, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Um, two two like prominent scenes for that. I mean, maybe three or four sure and uh but the first one we see jane played by Peyton list and uh you know she's uh reading a poem that she says she wrote well what if i told you that, uh, okay. she did not write that poem okay and that uh she's uh doing a little fib to mr roger there well who wrote that poem then uh i forget i i gotta look it up actually because it definitely is not hers <laughs> um and that's kind of the point i think she's like trying to impress yeah um Roger, obviously. Right. Um, but one thing I noticed the second time watching that, I didn't notice the first time. So we have that scene. And the, the whole thing with Roger here is that he's divorcing Mona to mm-hmm. marry Jane. He proposes to Jane in the first scene. Uh, but that is such an interesting mirror to the way that like Don wakes up with Joy later in the episode. Right. She's also on like that side of the bed. Um, she's also kind of, you know, like has like the, the sheet over. But instead of like plagiarizing a poem, she's reading a book. Sure. Uh, William Faulkner book. Yeah. And you just see a little bit more of like, yeah, like a little bit more of a frankness about it. She, you know, and she, it gets into like who she really is. She's 21. We know Jane is 20 pushing 21 and we see like Don and Roger paralleling exactly here. Uh, it's, it's kind of interesting. And it, did you have any read on that um, specifically? Well, I mean, that is kind of fascinating in the sense that like they are both kind of like, Living out, I don't want to say like a midlife crisis, but like, you know, more or less, it's kind of like more uh, for Don, yeah, yeah, because he's 36, yeah, yeah, 36 at this point, yeah, like kind of just living these sort of fantastical ideas, just like potentially in Don's case, you know, tearing his life apart. Certainly in Roger's case, like he just doesn't seem to care, he's just you know, steamrolling through his marriage and just trying to, you know get something happening with Jane at this point. But yeah, but then, yeah, I mean, it seems like there is always something false with Jane's relationship uh, with Roger. Just, you know, even though he's trying adamantly to make it seem like a real, you know, uh, longstanding thing, it's, you know, you you didn't buy it when his lawyer was like, congratulations. (laughs) And like, it's like, yeah, okay. Right. And then now with duck, like potentially trying to seize on that, uh, vulnerability mm-hmm. and potentially, you know, trying to like maybe take his position at the company if he's going to fall, you know, a few steps down later on. But yeah, I mean, I do think it's interesting that uh, Joy is seen kind of more as like a fantastical uh, figure, like someone who like you kind of almost expect her to like evaporate in any single scene. Like she has, like you said, that sort of femme fatale personality, but she also just doesn't seem real. Like she seems almost too good to be true but she does seem also at the same time more tethered to reality more honest someone who is a little bit more uh 
uh, like transparent about who she is and how she views the world and all that. And so it is a fascinating sort of a uh, contradiction between these two characters and uh, interesting, as you said, kind of parallel or mirroring between Roger and Don at this point. Yeah, especially because Don has been critical and uh, very icy with Roger over, you know, him leaving Mona for Jane. And we sort of see that the two guys are not that different in this respect. It's like, here is where they are similar and here's where they are different. And it's like Weiner puts them in like the same situation. And what makes them similar is that they both get into that same situation where, you know, in Don's case, he's not trying to leave Betty, but clearly he made choices that brought that on for himself, you know, and, uh, yeah. and won't fess up to it. But, but even, then uh, when, it, when mm-hmm. he meets joy, like he sees Betty initially, like he doesn't even, right. or wait, not, or actually, I don't think that was, joy that he saw like but initially he like sees no no yeah it was a woman who had the same hairstyle as betty right yeah 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 but yeah initially he like thinks he sees um you know betty here in california and then that's almost like a fantasy of itself like somehow Mm -hmm. she found the way to like you know fly away left the kids with somebody and like tried to reclaim her love and yeah that that also kind of sets the scene in a fun interesting to your point yeah as soon as that happens and he thinks he sees betty that's exactly when the, the, the Vicant guy goes right up to Don and is like, oh, hello, uh, my daughter, you don't know is my daughter yet, wants to have sex with you. Right. Well, his name is um, Willie. Willie, yes. Yeah. The Vicant de, de Montfer, uh, Fosse, uh, you know, whatever he says. Um, yeah. So the diff- the big difference, though, you know, kind of skipping ahead a bit, is that ultimately Don rejects this. Ultimately, Don kind of sees through the facade. He holds up the glass, right? And it has like the crack in it. And he sees that it's like, it reminds me of um, what Ken said about the gold violin. You know, it's beautiful in every way, except it can't play music. Like there's clearly a fault in this lifestyle. It triggers it for Don when he sees the the kids, uh, specifically the kid that looks like him, um, that uh, the man named Christian shows up late and he gives him his room and everything. And he sees that kid and like it's like a, a flip switches. And he's like, nah, I'm not going to do this. Um, he, he clearly seems to have a change of heart. I was going to ask you, like, who do you think uh, Christian is supposed to be um, in relation to Joy? Um, I know, like, his name, obviously, you could do, like, religious stuff. But I mean more literally. <laughs> uh, remind me, so who is Christian again? He was the guy that showed up at the pool um, at night. It was uh, close to the end of the episode. He oh, has the two kids the, with him. Yeah, the kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, I, I certainly think a he's... Christian he, father. Yeah, I mean, that's... To me, I kind of took that as like that was what kind of broke the spell a little bit for him in a way. Like he sees, you know, Bobby in that kid a little bit. And he also kind of sees himself. He sees himself because the kid has the bull cut kind of. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's him kind of seeing, you know, Bobby reminding himself of Bobby. But yeah, I think more importantly, he sees himself again. This kind of kid that's like, you know, wide eyed looking at the world, can't really comprehend what's going on, but probably, you know, irrecoverably traumatized by this whole, you know, yeah. nomad lifestyle that he's happening to witness and, you know, be a part of in some way. Yeah. Uh, Weiner has stated that Christian himself is an ex lover of joy, but that those are not her kids. Um, because apparently people have been confused about that. And <laughs> that's kind of what I've always read is that they had like a thing or something, but yeah. No, they were never married. Uh, they were just roommates. Um, sure. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and then to top that off, of course, 
because I mentioned the William Faulkner thing, I also noticed something kind of interesting at the end of the episode when, you know, but right before the suitcase, uh, when Don is on the couch and he calls up somebody, mm-hmm. uh, clearly I'm going to ask you who you think that is, but also he takes, he rips out a page from the William Faulkner book. Right. And I never really thought much of it before, but this time around, I thought to myself, it's almost like he doesn't expect joy will finish that book. Like it almost, it's like, even if he's wrong about this, that he kind of sees joy the same way that, you know, we see Jane, that it's all kind of a facade that she was reading that book and that she was just kind of doing it to impress Don, you know? And he's like, this doesn't matter. I can just take this page out. She's never going to get to it. And he uses that of course, for the, for the address of the person he's going to go see. But yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of took it maybe a little bit more, uh, literally in the sense that like, it's the very last page of the book and he's like, you see that he writes it under the text, like in a way he's maybe continuing the story, like kind of adding his own narrative yeah. to it or his that own ending. Too. But I haven't actually read the sound of the fury. The only Faulkner book I've read is as I lay dying. So I don't know if that narratively fits what the story is. I haven't read it either. So I, yeah, I don't know. There might be some connection there that Weiner had in mind and, um, and I'm sure there is, he always does that, but yeah, I, and, and then of course we get that reverse shot where he has his arm on the couch and it's the iconic Don Draper on the couch pose, but it's going in the other direction as if to say like, this is, you know, the other side of Don, you know, like this is not, you know, cause usually we see him in his suit doing that. This is yeah. him when he's shed his skin and the, the yeah, there's something kind of, uh, fitting about that scene or that look yeah i mean i kind of take it like as soon as he stepped into the sun and went in that car he was automatically dick again like i think there was still like him kind of wearing the dawn you know persona but i think you know dick is what came out Dick there. is in the driver's seat this time well in the passenger seat passenger seat this no time. i think dick well no i mean like I don't mean literally in the car, right. but I mean, I think it's like Dick driving the, the body. No, I, I, know. I know. I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> it's like an infinity pool thing again, too. It, right. it really is like infinity pool, by I'm the way. I'm just fucking with um, you a little bit. But, um, <laughs> sure. Uh, and then Don, Don is in the car, too, but he's kind of like, you know, he's in the, he's backseat driving a little bit. He's right. just like, Dick, look out. But like the next thing we see him, like his hair is ruffled, like his shirt's open. Obviously, it's because of the sun, but I just kind of take that as like, yeah, it, that is, you know, dick and fool but i think it's meant to be like when he passes out and he's like in the house again that's like him being like dick and fool but i feel like he kind of reverts back to don a little bit when he's um you know comes to a little because he's like thrown off and he feels like he has to be kind of protective and he has to like remember where he is and yeah. like i thought he was drugged when i first watched the episode years ago hmm. and it kind of feels that way especially when you see the guy with the syringe and everything and um yeah yeah, I mean, we all know what these hippies are up to. <laughs> are they hippies? I mean, well, they're nomads, they, but they, yeah, yeah, because like they they're rich, they're avoiding their taxes. They, they don't, they're not bohemians. I think that's one of the things that strikes Don about these people because he's used to bohemians. He was, you know, right. he was in a relationship with Midge. He's been around them. He kind of gets their deal. He's like, all right, communists. But then these people are kind of a different thing. They're like an elite status they're a little bit more of like the people that burt cooper you know would kind of like rub shoulders with and i think that there's something striking about that to don because it's almost like he can see like this is where my life could be headed this is one of the paths this is one of the the branches of the tree that is business and uh, there's something interesting about that uh, it's almost a little weird to me that he doesn't really see 
like there, there's the scene where the uh where willie uh kind of hits on him a little bit he just like walks sure. into the room tells him he's beautiful kind of touches him a little bit and then he finds out that like joy is his daughter and it, it's almost kind of like when she's like oh he doesn't want people to think he's old and, the episode doesn't play it up too much. You can, I read it into it that like Don is kind of seeing himself as like this guy someday, you know, because he has different names. He's pretending to be somebody he's not. And he's a little bit more sort of like freewheeling like Dick would be. Right. Yeah. I mean, well, for one, uh, just before I forget, are we supposed to really take Willie seriously in this episode? No, uh, I mean, it depends what you mean by that. Well, I just, I mean, for me, like, the actor Felipe Breckenmeyer, I don't know how exactly he pronounced his last name, but I know mainly from like the Broken Lizard movies, like, you know, Super Troopers and uh, uh, Beer Fest. So like in my brain, like it's I, I always kind of look at him comedically. I know he, do, he doesn't only do comedies, but my head can I, I, I kind of like expect him to be goofy and funny, especially with that, like kind of thick accent and his kind of, you know, hoity toity attitude. But I just didn't know if I was me misreading the character or if we're not really we're kind of just supposed to see him as like this goofy aloof bohemian you know he and hedonistic kind of guy i think i mean my assumption is the latter but of course i'm i'm open to to any interpretation really because i think that it, it's great that you have a comedic actor in this role um somebody who has been uh and not just comedic movies he's been in a lot of other stuff too he's been in like romantic stuff too hasn't he but, well, um, that's what I was saying. Like, I, I'm not saying that's the only thing he's done. That's just what sure, I sure. associated him with. Yeah, I mean, I, I get what you're saying there. I, I guess for me, like, I, I like that sort of like enigma that he brings out. To me, it's more, it's more enigmatic than I think it is. Sort of like this is parody or satire. I don't know if that's what you're saying, but I do think that it's heightened. You know, and I think part of that goes into the writing. Like, I think that he's trying to be extra he's trying to sort of be this animated eccentric you know the most interesting person in the room kind of character this speaks to like when joy kind of drops that line about how he likes don because don's beautiful and he doesn't talk too much i think the reason he likes that is because he wants to be the center of attention but without being the only center of attention because of his insecurities right i just mean that like Don seems like the type of person who can read people when they're fake or like he can kind of tell when people aren't being sincere and that's the reason why he's attracted to joy in many respects like he sees her honesty and her sincerity as well as mm -hmm. her intellect and her free-spirited mentality so i just didn't know if like we're supposed to just kind of be not like distrustful per se of of willie but just like the sense of, like oh he's like a clown he's a goof or if that's just me assuming that because i associate him with his comedic work yeah definitely clownish tendencies sure and i think even like I think Don even sees something like when Joy is really trying to sell him on him going with them. I think like she's kind of being a little bit vulnerable. She's kind of trying to negotiate with a guy because I think she genuinely likes Don. Like I think that she, you know, she's experienced the, you know, the dick, uh, Dick Whitman will get your head out of the gutter. Uh, but no, I mean, she even sure. says she's like, I like sex and you know, and you do too. Like, I think that mm. she's clearly like, finding the chemistry there the the physical compatibility with this guy i think she is also projecting a little bit on her dad when she says that like oh he's beautiful and doesn't talk too much i think she likes that about him too um, yeah the, the, i think that she's intrigued by him at first because he's mysterious because he's just like this question mark and then i think as she peels back the layers and finds a little bit more she likes that too but i think that don's kind of in the situation where 
I think he, I'm sure he finds her attractive and, you know, is enjoying this lifestyle, but when it comes down to it, like he looks at those, like we said, he looks at those kids and he sees that like, there's no future here. Like he couldn't bring kids into this kind of thing. And I think that he still feels that responsibility, even, even as despicable as Don can be when it comes to his kids in terms of he was going to abandon them to be with Rachel last season. Right. Oh, I mean, that's it to me more is that like, I feel like he's not even thinking like, can I incorporate my kids into this life? It's more like, well, obviously I have to like be out of their lives forever. Like, is it worth it to pursue this life? Is it meaningful enough for me to just, you know, throw away everything I've made of myself as this Don Draper personality and just kind of follow, you know, blindly with these, uh, you know, people. And I think it's looking like, yeah, maybe, you know, this was a fun little excursion, but probably not, uh, you know, something that's meant to last. But uh, it did inspire him to call somebody. Or That's know. right. Who do you think it is? It's a good question. Well, obviously, he introduced himself as Dick, so it has to be someone he knew before. Um, I was wondering if it was maybe that woman that recognized him in that flashback at the car dealership. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. Um, but I don't know because that was this season, right? That wasn't last season. That was this season, yeah. Um, but I don't know if that's her. I mean, I'm trying to remember who's even left this point that would know that he's Dick. Like, I mean, his family's pretty much out of the picture. You know, Adam's gone. Uh, yeah, I don't know. This is the episode. And sorry, I was I was making sure this is the, it's the episode where Don gets the car. Um, which I believe is the gold violin because it's the one where um, Betty finds out, like uh, Jimmy tells her um, about the affair with Bobby Barrett, not Bobby Draper. Um, and she throws up in the car. And that's the scene that like Don flashes back to because when he was a car salesman. So I, I'm pretty sure because I know that's not maiden form. Um and then night to, I don't think that was night to remember either because that was the episode. Was it night to remember though? Oh, maybe. Mm. I thought it was a night. Oh, that's, to, that's or, the, oh yeah. Night to remember is the dinner party episode. That's right, yeah, so yeah. that's the episode where she confronts it. So yeah, it's golden violin. It's gotta be anyway. Sorry for the, the tangent there. Sure. Um, how'd you feel about, uh, joy just saying sound of fury is only okay. She's a bit of a, a bit of a critic. She'd she'd fit right in and uh, cinemaholics. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I, I again, I don't know how seriously to take her. Kind of similarly, you know. Um, I, the idea that like, I think well, that she. No, go ahead. I mean, well, she certainly seems to be kind of attracted to these, you know, older, maybe more intellectual guys. Like clearly, there's some stuff going on, as you mentioned, with her father. Maybe something See, even that's what I was going to get into. It's like, yeah, because they bring up the thing where she she doesn't finish school, and so like I think there's maybe an insecurity there of like you know where her life is headed, like what she's going to be, and you know I mean the episode's not about her, so we don't really get that much info or anything. But yeah, there is something so interesting about like how it all just seems sort of like she's she's headed toward i think bad news like i i don't i don't see how things pan out for her necessarily like she's probably gonna just be left with a bunch of money or something i mean if that it seems like like when they're very uncomfortable and don says like so you're all well off <laughs> you know he's kind of like rude there like you know it's a, that is more of a dick whitman kind of you know like sort of you know being untoward i suppose yeah and also i mean i want to shout out uh i don't know how much he's in the show but i thought you know, the actress, Laura Ramsey, did a nice job here. I mean, I think uh, Weiner 
enjoyed her because I believe she was in that one uh, and only director Alfred did the Are You Here or whatever that movie, that awful movie was called. Because I know like. Oh, uh, yeah, the one that you and Mike saw. Yeah. But I think she hasn't <laughs> really, I think she like kind of stopped acting, I think, after like the like early 2010s. Like I feel like she hasn't really, like all of her like listed credits are like from the 2000s and I don't know, looking at her IMDb, yeah, she's it doesn't seem like she's, yeah. She's mainly being, she's mainly done TV work. Um, over the last decade, um, so a TV or movie wise, she hasn't been in a movie since 2013. Uh, it's been a decade. Um, her last show, uh, she was she was uh, a lead in a TV show called Hindsight back in 2015, and uh, she was in a TV film that's supposed to be coming out this year called A Rose for Her Grave and Other True Cases. And so. I think she, yeah, she probably took a, a bit of a break from acting. It looks like a, like a seven, eight year break there. Um, don't know why, but uh, yeah, she's uh, she's talented for sure. So I, I think I feel like we should talk about the duck stuff. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I I I have I, plenty to say there. It, yeah, I was gonna say. I mean, initially, I kind of felt like this stuff was a little out of place, but I think mm. I get why they were incorporated here. Like just when I was watching it initially, I was kind of like, I don't know. It seems a little like odd that this is, you know, being in here because I had to kind of remember there was like stuff with Dick at the beginning, and then you know, like when that's yeah. reincorporated, I was like, oh yeah, this stuff. Yeah, there there are a few things you can tie together. It's not as neat and tidy, I suppose, as some other episodes. The way that all the storylines kind of flow, but in terms of, I think like what Dick, what Duck does here, I almost called him Dick. Uh, their names are so close, huh? Um, duck kind of seizes the opportunity that don isn't around like it's i think there is like such an intentionality to him asking for the partnership when don's not there and he knows don isn't there right because and then he does this sort of like you already mentioned it the same sort of thing knowing roger's divorce is happening and using that as a way to finagle the selling of sterling cooper to uh powell putnam powell and low and part of that of course is that i think that as we sort of get in that dialogue, he's threatened by Don. Um, you know, Roger says, like, Don's not exactly your biggest cheerleader. When he does the terms with uh, St. John Powell, you know, he's like, I have to be president and, uh, you know, creative has to answer to me. Like, clearly the guy has sort of, you know, he's on a power trip right now. Uh, Matthew Weiner has said, uh, because this is the episode where he does drink for the first time. And this is the mistake that I made. I sort of made it seem more ambiguous and more like, oh, maybe he did drink that night with Chauncey. I think I ultimately landed. I, I could be misremembering here, but I think I ultimately landed on him not drinking that night. And like the whole Chauncey thing was making him want to. And that's why he got rid of Chauncey. And I thought it was like, oh, maybe he has kind of secretly. But uh, Weiner has confirmed that no, like he hasn't drunk, hasn't had any drink at all until this episode. And he likens it to like, duck and drinking is like Popeye and spinach. It's like, as soon as he takes the sip, he immediately like barrels forward with like through the pleasantries with uh Powell and is able to be like, yeah, you think I'm worth nothing. And then he's able to like do the whole thing. And like, yeah. you can tell there's a subtle hint that he's had a bunch of drink before he confronts. Oh, yeah, yeah. He takes the breath. Or, right yeah. There. He takes the lifesaver. And I think that of course, like it's showing a little bit of like, it could be like some red flag territory there of like, well, you know, is the show trying to say that like alcohol makes, gives you liquid courage and it's great. Mm. And I, I, I would say, hold off. Like, you know, uh, there's more to see there, but, uh, and there's also, you know, 
a little bit of a double-edged sword because like he is he is forceful about it but he's also being um not a good guy uh, in this episode so yeah i mean the thing i think that's been interesting about duck this season is that all the other characters or not all the other a lot of the characters we tend to focus on this on this uh uh season and in the show uh tend to be characters who are almost trying to escape themselves like trying to presume a persona that they feel like they uh need to be to propel themselves in business, even if it isn't always in their own personal best interest. Uh, and Dick, or sorry, Duck is uh, the opposite. I'm also making these mistakes now. <laughs> uh, Duck is like the opposite <laughs> where it's like, he is at his best at his most destructive. And he doesn't really want to be that because he knows he can't really have like a, a, a thriving family life. He can't really, you know, have uh, what he wants in life. But like, he is also at his best when, you know, professionally he's at his best when he does indulge in his, you know, vices and his addictions. And it seems like, yeah, he's like, you know, the tragedy of his character season is that like, he's tried to move away from that, but he feels like he has no real choice. And he's basically either willingly or unwillingly like alienated all the things that he wanted when he went to, um, Sterling Cooper. And now he's just like, well, it's gotta be this guy. If I want to be, you know, mover and shaker in this company. So yeah, it's, Initially, I was like a little like, okay, why are we putting this in there? But then, yeah, as we kind of see that business needing go about and all that, it's like, okay, I get, I get where this is going. He's interesting because like Duck is a gambler and he tends to take really bad bets. I think that, uh, for example, I think he takes a huge risk when he picks the worst time to ask Roger essentially for a raise, a partnership. He picks the time when Roger just talked to a lawyer and Duck knows like Duck knows who that lawyer is. They have a little chat about, you know, clearly like this guy is going to, you know, hose Roger dry. And and Duck just seems to have this like, like, oh, I'm still going to bet it all. I'm still going to try to like put Roger in this position where, you know, I'm going to get promoted right now when mm. he's clearly not going to be in a good mood and he's going to have like you know, his fleeting money on his mind. Like it's very odd, but I think that even when he drinks, he still has that sort of like bad judgment. He just knows how to sell it better, I guess, because when you see him try to sell the partnership, it's so weak. You know, he, he's just sort of like, I, I don't, I don't, I, you, I don't have any accomplishments. Like, I love the way that Roger responds to that. He's just like, uh, cause he's like, Oh, I, I'd be happy to advocate for what I've been able to do. And Roger's like, good. Cause I'm at a loss, you know? And, I think like the way Duck reacts to that is like defensive and he's kind of like, well, well, gosh, gee, what do you mean? Like, thanks for being candid, sir. And I think like Roger probably sees that. and It's just like, man, like what, who is this guy? Like he, he's supposed to be the head of accounts. Like accounts is supposed to be all about like not taking no for an answer. Sure. And like that, sh- that was probably a big test for him. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, it is interesting that they've kind of flipped in this episode. Cause they're both in a fairly vulnerable state personally, relating to like their own, you know, lives and uh, their own family lives. And this idea that, you know, Roger's clearly, you know, going to be uh, not on the better side of the legal case uh, when it comes <laughs> to his uh, future divorce uh, hearings. But yeah, but then, you know, also obviously we've seen Duck's kind of personal fall, his inability to kind of rekindle his, uh, you know, marriage and relationship though. I will say, I mean, I did, um, you know, with the lawyer, when we see him, I, I, Figured that was like, you know, he knew uh, him because of his own, you know, uh, divorce hearings and whatnot. But there was a part of me like just the way that Duck looks at him. I was kind of wondering and I 
figure this is not the way you're meant to read it. But part of me was wondering, like, did they have like a maybe romantic history? <laughs> going on. like i don't know i just thought like maybe it was like okay no because like a lot of characters here are, like hiding their own you know sexuality and it was like i was kind of wondering like maybe maybe dick also has like a homosexual lifestyle that we just don't know it. but duck sorry yeah duck yes yeah, i don't know where you got that well uh, just uh just <laughs> me read i like i said I, I knew that wasn't the read but that was just a a thought that crossed my head i was like oh that'd be interesting if that's where this went but no I don't know. Well, I usually like I, I commend your Gator. Your, your Gator is the stuff of legends, but that was just sure. swing and not even in the right ballpark. I got just whoa. Sure. But okay. All right. Hey, look, no read is incorrect. Uh, well, a few of them are, but you know what? I, I wish you best of luck. Yeah. Like, I mean, I never said that that was the accurate read. It's just a thought that crossed my mind. It's interesting. It's interesting. It crossed your mind. Uh, the last, the last stuff we didn't really get into detail was the Peggy stuff, which again, it, it's a little bit more sort of like Peggy reinventing herself. You can, you can kind of tie it to what's going on with the, I don't know. Like, well, it's, it, all it's a bit of a stretch, but yeah, really it's like identity and in public I, facing and like, like every other episode right. of the show. Yeah. Sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not that deep, but but I do think it's a I, look. I appreciate it. I do. I do like the contrast between somebody like Peggy and somebody like Joy's. Like Joy goes for what she wants. You know, she goes for the the guys that you know interest her. And like Peggy has sort of changed from that a bit. Like she was trying to be like that with Pete, and I think that that kind of changed her. Like her situation changed her, and she's still kind of dragging that around with her. She's dragging around that old style, the way that she used to be. I do really like in the beginning of the episode, she's kind of taken charge because Paul's not there and Don's not there. And I think that like when they're in the creative meetings, like she is showing leadership. She's like being it like they aren't just like telling us she's good at her job. We get to see it. Like a lot of these shows tend to skip that part where just show us some scenes over the course of a season or a series that get across to us what this person's competence is like and show us like other characters how incompetent they are <laughs> because like nobody seems like they really have a handle on the right guard situation right guard was the the product that uh last season you know they had the campaign where paul tried to sell it with like the astronaut and everything and so you know this is now peggy trying to like take charge of this campaign and she seems to be i don't know more like don here where she's just like a little bit dismissive of like how to sell this product in a way that is convincing to me um and then she's a little bit more of like let's get out of here let's have some fun like she's kind of being more fun and i think that kurt is right to point out that like she is ready for the next stage she's ready to sort of like blossom into becoming her own sort of thing the problem is that she's not uh She's still kind of like carrying around that symbol. I think there there's a reason why Pete is the one who no, who doesn't quite notice the hair, but then notices, you know, something has changed with her. And I, I think that that had to have, it had to have been Pete, right? And I think like her changing her hair, it's not just an aesthetic choice. It really is sort of like a marking of like, we've been watching Peggy over this season, like ever, almost every episode where she's been prominent, something happens with her that continues to sort of like, change her and it's like we're seeing how a person over time becomes another person becomes like the next stage of themselves and i think it's really great writing we don't see it a lot in shows like this a lot of the time we have to rely on like big sort of like stretching like now they're like this you know like think of like sitcoms where like an like a character like kevin in the office is 
all of a sudden goes from just sort of being like a bumbling accountant in the first season to by the seventh season, he's just like a joke. Like you just can't even like talk well, in complete sentences. Yeah. Right? I mean, that's like the flanderization of a character. Yes. Yeah. I do. I don't watch Simpsons, but I do know about that. <laughs> the Flanders effect or whatever it's called. Um, flanderization. Yeah. 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 Whatever it is. I, it is. Like a, it's such a real thing. Um, Sometimes it works out for characters, like characters get better in that way. But yeah, I think that uh, the way they do it with Peggy here is uh, it's great. It's great. And we're not done yet. We still have a few episodes of the season to go. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, the best sort of example of a flanderization is like with Always Sunny and like a character like Frank, where they deliberately just like up the ante so much that he's just almost a cartoon character at that point. Um, But yeah, I mean, as far as Peggy goes, I mean, she's a true master of disguise. Because she is becoming another person. That's a tie. Just kind of good. I'm. I'm just kind of going through my notes. I'm trying to see if there, if we caught everything. Did you uh, catch my we, uh, my little plug there for it ain't ogre totes ogre? You the the podcast you don't do anymore? <laughs> yeah, the like my now <laughs> defunct podcast RIP. Oh yeah, I was going to mention that. Uh, I think Kurt's confidence is infectious. I love it. Uh, it is very European. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping something happens with him and Sal, but I'm not putting my hopes up. Uh, I don't. I don't know if he's uh, Sal's type. You know. I mean, I know yeah. he looks a little bit like Ken Cosgrove. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he's his type either. Uh, but I just want. I just want Sal to be happy. I want him to find a, a meaningful connection. I mean, I know I he's know. married with his wife, but I feel like that's more of a emotional connection. I feel like he's not really getting the romantic connection there. So I think I, I think I've mentioned everything I had in my notes. The last thing is that we do see the suitcase uh, at the very last scene um, at the door. I, I just wrote like a little bit of a note. I mean, of course, the symbolism of, you know, Don's uh, suitcase is at the, the house and uh, clearly he's not there. His things uh, we we had the Samsonite pitch a couple episodes ago, uh, but I did write just a little goofy note here. I, I kind of wish delivery folks dressed up that nice I get these days. You know, like if I was sure. a delivery person, I'd, I'd like to wear a suit. I mean, not really. I'd, I'd be miserable. But yeah, you'd be like, Don, <laughs> wear what makes out. you comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Especially in California. Um, yeah. I mean, my, my overall read on this episode, I mean, the reason I love this episode, I know. And like I said in the beginning, some people find it overrated. I think some people find it a little bit like weird and wishy-washy. And uh, we, we have noticed we noted a couple of the flaws of how not all the subplots come together. But I just feel like this is one of the most cinematic episodes of Mad Men so far. Cinematic in the way where I, I feel like it's so much more inventive. Matthew Weiner has said that like one of the one of the things that Phil Abraham was able to do with this episode is that because it was like the stranger in a strange land, because it was departing so much from the established Mad Men energy and formula, he could be a little bit more innovative with the camera work. There's the scene where Dawn is falling down and they do something kind of fun with the camera there that's like attached. So you kind of see him as he goes down. It's a really cool effect. It adds, of course, to the intrigue, to the mystique of everything. And I, I just feel like I'm watching something where, especially the first time, the first time I, I'm not quite sure what I'm watching here. I'm not quite sure if Don's in danger, you know, or where everything is headed. And then I think it's an episode that only enriches itself as it goes further. I think the more I've watched it, the more I've just like really gotten sucked into it all over again. Uh, and it's an episode that really moves. It's one of the, the quickest paced episodes for me, even though it's about sort of the slow pace, you know, it's kind of interesting how that happens. So I'm a big fan. I, I, I think this is such a great episode uh, of the show, uh, especially in, in a season that I think that uh, doesn't have as many inventive episodes uh, like this. Uh, and uh, yeah, all for it. Uh, 
I, I did yeah. have actually one more. I, there was a note that I missed, but okay. uh, yeah, I don't know if you had any one thing you want to add to that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'm quite as high on it as you are, but I certainly like it and uh, respect it a lot. I think it's a cool episode, and I definitely uh, imagine this one kind of uh, set stage for what's to come later on in Mad Men. I mean, I can't say that knowingly, but I can yeah. presume as much based on how you've described future seasons of the show. So that's very intriguing and certainly something I can look forward to uh, when I get to watch the rest of the show, which could be who knows, because we record <laughs> yeah. these things so infrequently these days. <laughs> I, uh, I, do, I, I honestly like I get why like you just watch it the first time. Like I like it so much because I think I've seen it so many times at this point. <laughs> so I'm not too surprised. But and I hope that uh, if you ever do rewatch the show, you get the same sort of like enrichment that I've gotten from multiple viewings. But of course, it's a lot to ask. You know, it's a lot of a lot of TV out there. Um, and I, I mean, when I was watching the I mean, show, it was back at a time when there wasn't as much TV. <laughs> so, right. I'm just trying yeah. to concentrate on watching it once. I mean, it's just taking so dang long. <laughs> uh, I did have a note. Uh, I forgot to ask this before, but do you think Jane is into Roger for his money? Mm, yeah, I think we talked about this before, right? Because Matthew Weiner kind of noted something where he thinks that like Jane isn't really into Roger for his money or that she understands that uh, this divorce and like saying yes to the proposal and everything means that Roger is going to lose a lot. Um, I don't know if I buy that, though. I know he's the creator I mean, of the show, but it's kind of weird to think like she would. Yeah, I don't know. He's kind of trying to imply that she likes Roger for him. And I, I guess maybe there's a balance there that like. She wants to be married. She wants to marry somebody who's well off. But I maybe mean, it's not that because he's filthy rich, but that he is like taken care of and has like status. And she seems maybe she does genuinely like him as a person because he's charming. Hey, I, don't know. I think so. I mean, she's young and, and I don't know if she's like, you know, the most headstrong woman. But I think there's also a she, part of her. She's young, dumb and full of calm, as Zach Alphanakis would say. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you, don't, you don't remember that? I know what you're referencing. Sorry. I just, uh, okay, it seems I a little just, yeah, of course I know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But in any case, um, <laughs> sorry, I really took usually, you usually that's, that's a phrase that's designated for a guy. Like it seems a little like, uh, no, um, Zach says shamey. It to the, to I know, but it seems a little shamey when you describe a woman as such. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I'm just, sorry. Um, I didn't, I'm not shaming not, her. I'm, I'm happy know, for I her did. getting, yeah, she seems Whatever. to be getting it good. Yeah, I, I, okay. I get what you're saying, though. I, I'm not trying to put you uh, on blast or anything. In any case, um, I would deserve it. <laughs> uh, in any case, uh, I feel like it's more of a maybe not money thing, but maybe more of a status point. Like, I do think there's a part of her who's like, like you're saying, she's getting attention. She's being validated as a person might be more of a, you know, she's young and she's beautiful sort of thing. But like, I think she feels genuinely sort of appreciated. But I think as we've seen in her episodes where she's in the office, like I feel like she kind of wants to like speed run her way to like a position of like respect and like, you know, kind of similar to Pete. Like she's obviously younger than a lot of the employees there, but she wants to be seen as a peer. And we've seen that with like how, you know, she kind of uh, pisses off Jane by trying to like kind of act like she has a little bit more, you know, high status than she does. And also like in a more literal way when she like, encourages all the men uh in advertising to like sneak into um Bert's office like she's like trying to like kind of like work her way into high status and i feel like by being with roger that kind of allows her to be seen as maybe superior in her mind and i feel like that might be part of it but i don't know 
Um, I'm just kind of going through the rest of my notes here. Uh, so I think it's funny and ironic that Don, Don's sort of like, Pete, we're not on vacation. There's not going to be any swimming. And then like, eventually like Don is like swimming. <laughs> He's like eating Mexican food and goofing off. And it's, I think it's kind of yeah. funny. Um, shows a little bit more of that, you know, and we personality never, sort of switching that he does. And we never see Pete swim. No, poor, we see him live out by the pool. Right. You know, he could never uh, swim. He was on his guard, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. he was on his right guard. Did, did he um, honestly think that like Don would just show up at any moment, like hiding in the bushes yeah, or I something? So. <laughs> I feel bad for him. Um, I, we already mentioned that scene where Don gets into the car and it's nighttime and everything. Uh, I love uh, just in general the scene anyway. I didn't really get it. Like the part where he just gets in there, puts on the sunglasses, and she asks, like, don't you need to get you need to get your things? He's just like, no. Like it's just just perfection i just i just love the acting i love the way he delivers that line i love the way then the car just like moves off it's like yeah it feels it really uh, is like just the right touch like almost fellini-esque at times like it, 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 it really like, is yeah, yeah he's kind of got the marcello thing going on um for sure um let's see i think I, we might have covered everything that i had oh yeah there was one i think this is the last thing here we go so I really like how so Pete when Pete strikes out with the two girls, I noticed this time that like he's kind of like, How are you two doing today? And he's got like that cheesy smile and like nothing hat like the girls just like walk away after they help him get the papers. If you look in the background, there's this lady who's like not good at minding her own business, but she kind of looks over at Pete or she kind of sees it happening. Not really. And she's a little bit like eh, loser. <laughs> like it's you can kind of read that. I think um there is something to that of like how gossipy and sort of nosy California people can kind of be like up in everybody's business. Um, you would uh, know better than me. I, that is a thing. I, I like, I mean, I guess that happens in New York too, but I feel like in New York, everybody's sort of, I, I've noticed, you know, being from the East coast, like unless you're in the South, I guess, but like people, people tend to just sort of like focus on their own stuff, you know, mind their own business, you know, especially when you're out in public and uh, California, not so much California. I think people are kind of trying to, you know, always get like are a little bit more bored. I don't know what it is, but uh, I think that speaks to like Pete feeling so out of place and be like, the people here are just weird. Like he just kind of sure. doesn't get it, you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, he's out of his element. Yeah. But I mean, yes. Would he be more his element if Don was there? Like, or do you think he'd just be, you know, more no, I think if anything, he would be, he, he could use Don as an excuse. Oh, like, right. well, Don's sucking in all right. the attention, you know, like Don seems to fit in, in California way better than Pete. And I think it's because Don is the New York guy. Dick is the California guy. Well, I mean, I'd see Dick as someone who like, doesn't really feel tethered to any place. Like he just, he is a nomad spiritually. So mm. he can just kind of assume any identity. Go he wants i i yeah we'll, we'll have to continue this conversation because california is an important element of the show uh and it's something that i think uh we will get to even in even more detail later are we uh, gonna I think I already, see more yeah. joy later or is that the last we see of her i'm not saying all right come on now um no we never see her again all right so um hmm. i thought we I would uh, of, see her at least mm -hmm. a little bit next next week or whatever but i guess not well, I'll leave it open for you. Maybe I'm lying to you. Um, <laughs> Thanks. Uh, for trivia, uh, I don't have too much left. I covered a lot of the trivia already just through over the course of the episode. But uh, uh, one thing I didn't mention is that the episode takes place um, between September 24th and October 1st in 1962. And uh, actually, uh, one note is that Bob Dylan did play Carnegie Hall but on September 22nd, 1962. So they flowed mm -hmm. a little bit with the timeline there, but it is cool that like he actually was at Carnegie Hall around that time. It's kind of funny. Did, uh, did you think it was weird they didn't play any Bob Dylan on the soundtrack for this episode? 
no comment because I would say never say never. I'm not saying ever. I'm saying for this episode. I know it'll happen, but just let it be. Let it be. Um, Another piece of trivia. Well, that's the the Beatles, John. That's not Bob Dylan. Yeah, I know. I know. Uh, Look, we got Bob. Well, look, speak it up. We got a Bob Dylan song last season at the end of uh, season one. Sure. Yeah. And this episode was originally planned for the first season. Uh, it's based on the books of Slim Zarens, hmm. according to Matthew Weiner. Slim Zarens, excuse me, um, which I think have to do with like the jet setters and the nomadic stuff. And I think Weiner always had in mind he wanted to do an episode like this. Um, but I think it worked out because I think it fits really well in the second season when he's estranged from Betty already. It kind of like makes it even more compelling, the idea of him leaving everything behind. Um, the house that the jet setters are staying at that they filmed in this once belonged to Frank Sinatra. Um, and they actually, uh, the house was put on the market two years ago for $21.5 million. It's in Chatsworth, California. Uh, it's been used in all kinds of TV shows and movies. Uh, I think, uh, I could be wrong. I think they used that house in, I love you, man, but, uh, I could be misremembering, uh, ratings wise. Uh, the episode was viewed by 1.5 million people on its initial airing. It's one of the highest rated episodes of this season. And, uh, let's see here. That's most of it. A lot of the interesting stuff. <clears throat> oh yeah uh there there was one thing about how the hotel room that roger and jane are in um so according to uh one of the producers uh or not the producer excuse me phil abraham uh he said that they've used that same hotel room for a lot of episodes and uh he, basically like dan bishop and amy wells like the ones who do a lot of the sets and everything the magic they're able to do to make the hotel rooms look different is nothing short of amazing because <laughs> they use a lot of the same stuff makes sense yeah. um yeah, there's a whole thing where like Matthew Weiner mentions that like he he claims that Jane's not really a gold digger. Um, she just kind of like is into Roger, like legit, and wants to pursue it. Those so, are there. You go. His words. His words. Gold digger. <laughs> not read really him, but close to it, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess the show was, uh, uh, you know, in the tail end of the 2000s, so. <laughs> The uh, the music, uh, according to David Carbonara, the music that plays when Don thinks that he sees Betty, like when Betty's like at the bar, it is very similar and is supposed to be of a piece with the the music you hear when he sees her walking down the stairs in the hotel uh, on Valentine's Day, uh, first episode of the season. But uh, as you can recall, uh, Don Don doesn't have as much trouble uh, having uh, the sex in this episode as he did in that episode. The sex. Um, <laughs> according to Matthew Weiner, the idea behind the blue sport coat and how like the suitcase ends up at the, the doorstep and he's still in California, uh, his intention there is that he, his luggage was lost and that he gets to be another person in this way. So, uh, Weiner himself kind of like pointing out the symbolism of that and, uh, um, he said, oh, according to Matthew Weiner, the character Willie was basically taken from the Slim Aaron's book. So I, I didn't mention that before, but, uh, yeah, I think that the way that the actor is drawn, like the casting apparently was really good. Cause I think that was the intention, like the clownish intriguing guy, I guess it's kind of interesting. So, um, yeah, I think that's basically it. Will. Uh, All right. good episode. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, before I forget, did oh, you ever play that? one more thing. Okay. Sorry, sorry. Matthew Weiner said that carport scene, the one I mentioned that was shot at night, uh, he thinks it's one of the best uh, I think we've done in the show. Up until that point, because this is something he said, I think, when they were making season three. Uh, which episode was this? Sorry. Or, sorry, what scene is this? 
This is the scene where Don gets into the car. The one I was kind of hyping up before. Okay, okay. Yeah, it's a good scene. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, you were saying before? I was going to say, did you ever play that game the where they have to guess the countries and you know start with the last letter or whatever? I forget what yeah, it ages ago. Um, okay. I think because I, I, I want to say it was like right after college. I was with a group of friends that I had you know, I had seen this episode, obviously, and I thought sure. of that game. And I was like, oh, we should play that. It's fun. Yeah, we should do People, a speed round on the yeah. podcast here. I, it would be more fun if Mike was here, but that's a, let's do that now and the episode. Great. All right. So that's Mad Men Men. Thank you so much for listening. Right. And uh, <laughs> uh, Portland. <laughs> um, All right. Fine. Okay. Uh, let's see. Um, I was going to say Rhode Island, but that's not a city. Um, Rome. Yeah. Oh, there you go. There you go. Um, hmm. I almost said Edelweiss. Mm. <laughs> that's not a city. It's a song. Great. And not doing um, so great at this game. Yeah, I can't think of one that, with yeah. E. I'm sure there's like tons of like obvious ones. All right, you win, Will Ashton. You did a great All job. All right, great. Maybe we can do it with Mike next week. If it'd be more yeah, fun. There you go. There. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week to talk about the Mountain King, which. Uh, Actually, I think is another good episode. So, uh, and uh, Alan Taylor directs. So, uh, don't worry. This is way before Thor: The Dark World. So, all right. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you all in the next one. Goodbye. See ya.